This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a conversation about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. In March 2015, the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues, better known as the Bioethics Commission, released a report titled Gray Matters, Topics at the Intersection of Neuroscience, Ethics, and Society. This report explores the ethics of neuroscience research with important commentary on consent capacity, the consent process, and the stigma associated with this emerging field of research. Elizabeth Fenton and Nicole Strand join us to talk about the report and what it has to offer IRBs and IRB members. Elizabeth Fenton is Senior Policy and Research Analyst for the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethics. She is co-editor of the Rutledge Companion to Bioethics. And Nicole Strand, also Senior Policy and Research Analyst for the Bioethics Commission. She has published extensively in the area of informed consent and incidental findings in genetic research. So what is the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues? As a longstanding IRB member and staff member of a human research protection office, I feel like this is a a very underutilized uh, resource here in the U.S. for the review of human subjects research. Can you tell us a bit about what you do? Sure. So uh, the Bioethics Commission uh, was... um Created in 2009, it um, was created by executive order of the president, President Barack Obama, and our uh, main job is to provide advice to the president through reports and recommendations on bioethical issues. Um, those are largely issues that arise from advances in biomedicine and related areas of science and technology. Um, so. The commission will um, sometimes have uh, be asked by the president to look at particular issues or, or some other public official, um, and it can also um, determine topics for itself um, that it would like to explore. So the, this Bioethics Commission has done both of those things. Uh, some of its reports are um, oriented around topics that uh, it wanted to pursue, and others have come... By, by way of a, a charge from the president. Yeah, and it seems like since the late 70s, there's always been a presidential commission, right, for bioethics issues? That's right, but um, there doesn't have to be. So it's um, the unlike other countries that have uh, standing bioethics bodies, uh, national bioethics bodies, the, uh, the presidential commissions in the United States are... Uh, tied to a presidential administration. So when a president takes office, they can decide uh, whether they want to have a, an advisory okay. body of this nature. And, and then if they do, they they uh, they create them. Yes, and this is really important context because the presidential commission very often will uh, create reports that are uh, extremely relevant for the re- review of human research ethics. Uh, even just in the recent past, we've seen the Moral Science Report, Anticipate and Communicate, and then the report we want to talk about in more detail right now, the Gray Matters Report. Can you think of some other examples in which the Presidential Commission has been crucial in how IRBs should think about research? 
So you're absolutely right. I mean, I, in preparing for our conversation today, I was um, looking back through our, our pile of reports. The Commission's been very prolific. It's published nine reports since 2010. Um, and almost all of them, I think all of them, uh, touch on human research ethics in some way. Some of them like moral science. Obviously, moral science is a report that's entirely about um uh, protections for human participants in federally funded research so that that's um, a really detailed exploration of that topic but all of them have focused on uh, some questions in uh, research ethics so for example another recent report uh, ethics and Ebola which was a um, a brief report looking at some of the ethical issues that arose out of the 2014-2015 Ebola epidemic in Western Africa looked at two really important uh, clinical research questions uh, in the public health emergency context. So it looked, uh, at, looked at and made recommendations on the design of clinical research, particularly related to uh, the use of randomised control groups and also uh, issues of privacy, informed consent and benefit sharing in relation to biospecimens. And both of these, uh, these questions are um, of, of real importance to the review of research, particularly research that has an international component, like some of the uh, research that was planned, or that, that was conducted during that epidemic. So, um, so really, uh, all of all of the reports touch on these uh, issues in some detail. And just to um, just to let your listeners know, in case they don't, it's really important to um, that that the Commission's reports are all publicly available and easy to access. They're all available on our website, www.bioethics.gov. You can click on the Projects tab and see a list of all of the reports and download all of them as PDFs. Yeah, and my, my experience of the Presidential Commission as uh the a staff member of a human research protection office is that what the presidential commission often does is thinking even a little bit ahead of the curve that you're aware of the kinds of ethical issues and research programs that are really maybe a year or two or more out and you're already anticipating some of the ethical issues that IRBs are going to have to grapple with well in advance and the gray matters report seems like an excellent example of that right uh, can you tell us uh, about the Gray Matters report, how it came about, and, and maybe a, a thumbnail sketch of some of its findings? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Gray Matters report um, sort of came out in response to the President's uh, Brain Initiative, the Brain, the Brain Research Through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies Initiative, which he announced in April of 2013. And um, along with the Brain Initiative, President Obama wanted the Bioethics Commission to review ethical issues associated both with the conduct of neuroscience research and also with, you know, the applications, sort of the fruits. What what do we do with the neuroscience research once we've once we've made these findings? And so the commission responded to this charge in two parts. Um, you know, they really wanted to get out early and and strongly urge neuroscientists and the Brain Initiative to integrate ethics throughout the process of neuroscience research. So just like you're saying, to sort of anticipate some of these ethical issues before they arise. Can you give us an example of a neuroscience research project that brings us in the orbit of this report? Uh, like a particular neuroscience research project? Yeah, maybe a generic example just to help us understand the kind of <clears throat> research the commission is addressing here. Yeah, so um, 
so in Gray Matters Volume 2, which was sort of our more um, deep dive into some of the specific scientific issues, um, we dealt with three topics. So cognitive enhancement, um, meaning, you know, drugs, devices, um, puzzles and games to sort of enhance your, your brain your, or your cognition or your, you know, ability to do well on a test. Um, uh, neuroscience in the legal system. So how can we use neuroscience research results um, in the courtroom or for, pol- for policymaking? And then also consent capacity in the neuroscience um, context. And so, you know, there's a lot of examples, a plethora of examples of different kinds of research studies in those in those topics. Um, you could do a research study about, you know, an amphetamine and whether its off-label use could be used for cognitive enhancement would make people smarter, quote unquote. Um, you know, you could do um, in the consent capacity realm. Um, we're talking about all the research that has to do with people. Um, whose conditions could lead, lead them to have impaired consent capacity. So, you know, traumatic brain injury, stroke, um, any kind of um, psychiatric disorder, schizophrenia, um, a whole range of potential, um, you know, psychiatric and neurological diseases, and all the research that you might do on humans who have those who have those conditions. Um, and you know, the questions, the research ethics questions around that are, you know, how do you enroll those people if yeah. they do limited or impaired capacity to consent? Yeah. Um, and that does seem to be one of the principal ethical issues here, right? The consent capacity issue, yeah. uh, which the report addresses at great length and, um, in, I think a, a very innovative way. Uh, the report itself makes four recommendations about consent and capacity in the kinds of research that you're talking about. Yeah. As these fields of research really pose very unique, uh, risks in the consent process and, they force us to think about research participants uh, in different ways. Uh, can we talk a bit about these uh, four recommendations? And uh, the first being that we would like to responsibly include participants with impaired consent capacity in neuroscience research. Yeah, yeah. So the, the commission felt really strongly about that first recommendation, and they really they sort of worded it very strongly. Um, you know, in the context of this report and sort of reviewing the past and the history on this on this topic, which has been very contentious, you know, the commission realized there have just been decades and decades of advisory bodies that are offering guidance on this topic, and they referred to this as sort of a swinging pendulum. So you have one advisory body that goes way in one direction and sort of um, urges, you know, almost overprotection. You know, don't include these participants. It's way too exploitative. There's way too much risk of harm. Um, you know, and then people react to that, and then the next advisory body kind of swings the other way to underprotection and, and and towards inclusivity without, you know, accompanying protections. And so the commission really wanted to strike a balance in the middle and said, you know, we have this dual mission as as researchers, as people who are in the neuroscience community, which is both to protect human subjects, but also really to include participants when we can so that we can learn more about these diseases. And that's that's really the thrust of the first recommendation. So this has been an ongoing conversation back and forth between overprotection and trying to find ways to increase research in the field. I, I noticed uh, that there was even all the way back in 1978 a proposal that a subpart E be added to uh, the yes. common rule that would specifically address issues of consent capacity and legally authorized representatives, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, in, in that light, the second recommendation is has to do with supporting research on consent capacity and ethical protections. What would you like to see there? What kind of research can we be doing, or what what kind of innovative work have you seen out there about increasing ethical protection in these new fields of neuroscience? 
Sure. Yeah. So, so in regards to that second recommendation, we really wanted to capture a broad swath of potential potential research about consent capacity, including both conceptual research and also empirical research. So, what does it mean to have consent capacity? And this is a really hard question. I mean, how you know, what does it mean to be able to consent to research to be informed about that? Yeah. Yeah. We need more research about that, but we also need more empirical research about how do we. Um, how do we assess, you know, a big part of, of making this kind of research ethical is really careful and, and sort of, um, individualized assessment of whether participants have consent capacity or not. Do you need to involve an LAR or not? Um, and, and the assessment procedures that we have now are, um, you know, good and we're using them a lot, but the, the MacArthur is the most common one. Um, you know, but we need, we need them to be better. We need them to be more specific and individualized. So that's, that's the kind of research that we were thinking of in that realm. So perhaps we'll start saying, uh, research on consent capacity and specific conditions, specific research environments right. that might provide guidelines for, for other investigators. Right, exactly. And how about, uh, the third recommendation, which is about engaging stakeholders to address stigma associated with impaired consent capacity. What kind of stigma is there in this uh, kind of research participation or is there a stigma associated with, with lacking consent capacity? Yeah, so we were thinking there, there's stigma associated with lacking impaired consent capacity. There's a, there's a sort of an idea in the field that, that a person who lacks consent capacity is vulnerable. Um, and there's this model of vulnerability that, that can be attached to a stigma. And there's also stigma attached to the very diseases that, that cause or that can impair consent capacity. Um, uh, like a psychiatric disorder might have a stigma associated with it or even a neurological disorder. And so, you know, our goal with this recommendation was to say we absolutely should move forward on this research. We have to include these participants so that we can do it. But as we do this research, we should include the perspectives of the, of the very people and the very communities that are going to be affected by it. So, um, you know, the stakeholders, the advocacy communities, um, members of affected communities should be on review boards or on research teams so that we understand how might this research affect them? What what would the results, um, when, once they came out, how would that affect their community? This is a really interesting point that you're making because I think one of the big shifts we're seeing in IRB review right now is that IRB members are starting to understand that there's an educational component inherent to the IRB review process that often we don't really take advantage of in our local communities. And what I mean by that is um, as we're engaging local participants in different kinds of research, the IRB review process it becomes a way uh, to help people understand what human research is and the kinds of protections that are in place and even the kinds of benefits that participating in research uh, can offer a local community or a hospital environment. And it seems like this particular recommendation uh, is running parallel to that that increasing sense of of education and advocacy and IRB review. Uh, do you see that happening, or is that something along the lines of what you're recommending here in Gray Matters? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you're actually raising an interesting point, um, which is that you know this this the way that an IRB sort of deliberates and talks about these issues and tries to come to a solution should we approve this research or not or or how should we recommend that this research team move forward you know that kind of deliberation is best when it goes hand in hand with people who are educated about 
you know, not only the scientific issues that are involved here, but also the ethical issues. And when you have members from stakeholder communities and from all different perspectives that are involved in this process, the sort of deliberation and the education kind of mutually reinforce each other. Um, so that's absolutely what we were getting at, not only with this recommendation, but really with kind of our, our entire breadth of of our set of reports. Um, and in fact, it is it is the topic for our um, our upcoming report, which will be about deliberation and education together in bioethics and how they reinforce one another. Oh, well, we very much look forward to that. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, along with gray, gray Matters, another example of the educational capacity of bioethics and, and human research ethics was definitely with the, the moral science report, which I think raised awareness of critical issues in transnational research ethics that even a lot of uh, very active IRBs hadn't been aware of prior to that. Yeah, well, we're very proud of that. And we're also really proud that, that moral science has been used and cited in the notice of proposed rulemaking to change the comment rule, which which governs federally funded research. Um, so, you know, OHRP, the Office of Human Research Protection, actually looked to the commission and looked to moral science you know, to see what are what are the outstanding issues today in research ethics. The common rule has not been updated for a very long time, so um, it's really exciting to see our work being used in that way. Indeed it is, especially given the, the depth and integrity with which your commissions uh, review these issues. Uh, the Gray Matters is uh, a two-volume work, correct? Of, <laughs> yes. Of, of how many pages each? I'm not even sure. Uh, quite lengthy. Um, yeah. A fourth recommendation, though, in uh, the Gray Matters volumes with consent and capacity has to do with establishing requirements for identifying legally authorized representatives, which is a really tough technical issue for a lot of IRBs. Yeah, it is. Um, and that's that's exactly why we wanted to address it head on. Um, we really think that, you know, the way the common rule, like I said, is written now, um, the common rule defers to state law and it says, you know, look to your, your state's local, your state's law to see, you know, who should serve as an LAR, what, how, how should they make their decisions, um, how do you appoint them? And then the problem is you look to state law and you actually don't see many laws at all that have to do with assigning an LAR for research. There are many laws for assigning, you know, a surrogate or a proxy for clinical care, but not so many for research. And so, you know, I think what happens here is that IRBs don't know what to do. It's a really complicated and confusing realm. They don't know which law they're supposed to follow or how to interpret it, and they're worried about legal liability. So, you know, we were really trying to to get some direction and some and some clarity with our final recommendation. So what should that look like? Do we need uh, one set of requirements or a policy for identifying legally authorized representatives that applies across states or simply enhance communication about how state laws work? Yeah, well, I, th I think either way. I mean, I think that the bottom line is that the commission wanted it to be clearer just just so that IRBs know what to do. Um, and I think that, you know, there, there were a number of ways to potentially do that, the, the ones that you just suggested. Um, but, you know, again, uh, the notice of proposed rulemaking to the common rule also cited two gray matters and to this particular recommendation in making a proposed change to the common rule that that would sort of loosen this whole LAR space up a little bit. And what the NPRM suggested is that instead of looking just to state law specifically, an IRB can also look to sort of local um, standards or whatever the community is doing um, in a particular state or in a hospital community or whatever it is. Um, to appoint an LAR, which I think does clarify things a little bit. And, and again, we're really proud to have been influential in that realm. So uh, with that in mind, can we switch gears a little bit to the actual IRB review process? Uh, what, what do you all think is most important for 
IRB members and, and research participants even to know about the kinds of science covered in the Gray Matters report. Uh, what are some what's what's some really good hands-on practical advice to people involved with the review process? So, just before we um, really get into the nuts and bolts of of Gray Matters, I want to highlight the considerable amount of work that the Commission has done to uh, develop educational materials that really complement its reports and pull out some of the most relevant and most practical aspects of its recommendations of it on each report for okay. different audiences. So um, for IRB members in particular, um, we have developed uh, several uh, primers that are geared towards um, really breaking down the Commission's reports to pull out what's most practically applicable to IRB members reviewing research. Um, in relation to grey matters, we have uh, a primer about all the issues that Nicole was just discussing, consent capacity, what the key ethical considerations are when uh, enrolling people in research uh, who might have impaired capacity. And so um, this is just a resource for your listeners, um, for, for people involved in um, research in any way, participating or reviewing. Uh, we have a whole uh, suite of educational materials on our website. Yeah, we'll be sure to link to those uh, in the corresponding description of this podcast so people can have quick access to them. That would be great because I think it's something that the Commission has really uh, focused on is, um, you know, once the report is out, once the recommendations are made, um, how can these how can these materials be really accessible to people and be used as part of a broader uh, bio, part of broader bioethics education. So that's just um, something to highlight, which is another aspect of this particular Bioethics Commission's uh, work. Um, but another really key point that cuts across reports um, and has been an overarching theme of the Bioethics Commission's work is that good science requires good ethics, but good ethics also requires good science. So hmm. to engage in these sorts of ethical conversations, uh, deliberation about ethical questions or evaluation of research proposals, making decisions about research, um, people do need to be informed about the science. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, but what we really also want to emphasise is how important it is to keep in mind some sort of bigger ethical considerations that, that rise up out of the, the, the sea of detail, the sea of scientific detail that in an area like neuroscience can be, um, can be really overwhelming. So, so we can pull out a couple of things from Grey Matters. Nicole's already done that for consent capacity. But in terms of things like cognitive enhancement, research on cognitive enhancement, uh, one of the key points that the Commission emphasised is that um, it's a real priority for neuroscience research should be to treat neurological disorders. That's a really key priority. And it's something um, that's just worth remembering as a sort of ethical guidepost when thinking about uh, neuroscience research. And similarly for the third topic that the Commission looked at in this report, for neuroscience in the legal system, uh, one of the key ethical considerations is the need to be aware of how um, research findings can be misunderstood and misused in this context. Um, and researchers and people reviewing research uh, really need to be 
um, aware of how to present, how they can present their findings so that they're not susceptible to hype or to misuse in that context. And these are, um, these are key sort of ethical guideposts that IRBs, IRB members and people participating in research um, can, can keep in mind um, as part of the review process you know, in addition to the real nuts and bolts of the science around a specific issue like neuroscience. That's interesting because if there's one thing the history of IRB review in the U.S. has shown us is that misunderstanding leads to overprotection and restriction on research that actually does propose a great deal of benefit to participants. Can you think of an example of that in neuroscience, uh, perhaps something that was involved in engendering even needing to write the Grey Matters report? Um, Nicole, feel free to jump in here, but I think um, even just the uh, topic of cognitive enhancement has been has been one that uh, is, is subject to a lot of hype. I mean, even in just in the media, you can often see uh, references to uh, particular pharmaceuticals or uh, other interventions that, that seemingly will... Um, uh, give people an edge, a cognitive edge over others or um, a sort of competitive edge. And these, this kind of hype is, is really, um, can be really dangerous because it, it obscures some of the uh, real nature of the findings and it can lead people to, um, want to do things that, that maybe are, um, are not, is not actually going to get them where they want to go. And, one of the things that the commission did in the um, Grey Matters report was to expand the notion of enhancement more broadly to what they call neural modification, in part to um, get away from some of the uh, hype that is attached just to the phrase cognitive enhancement. So that's an example of um, the way the sort of ethical analysis that the Bioethics Commission can do can um, just add a more measured and thoughtful um, uh, take to some of these um, hot-button yeah. research questions. Yeah. So one clear point of practical advice is to learn how to distinguish between hype and what's currently happening in that particular field of research. Exactly. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.